You've been hearing how some big brands are winning through simplicity. But don't get intimidated. You can do this too, no matter the size of your team or your budget. Want to learn the six behaviors you can instill to create simple experiences for your customers and your team members? Download a free copy of my simple playbook today. It'll help you immediately turn your customer experience around and create an Amazon experience without having an Amazon budget. Grab your copy of my simple playbook at mattliles.com slash simple playbook. Welcome to the Simple Brand Podcast, the show dedicated to helping you create simple experiences for your customers and for your team members. Each week, we're bringing you amazing interviews with business leaders and authors who will teach you how to differentiate your business with the one thing your customers need the most, simplicity. Your customers live in a complex world. Let's make it simple. Now, here's your host, Matt Lyles. In 2021, it's hard to create and run a successful business without content. And if you do content right, it'll help you build a loyal audience of customers. But it's not easy to figure out how to do content right. What do you create? Who should you create it for? Where should you distribute it? One or two places or everywhere? How can you make sure you're doing it correctly instead of wasting your time and resources? It's almost like you need a guidebook to help you figure it all out. And that's why I'm excited to talk with Joe Polizzi this week. Joe's the founder of Content Marketing Institute and The Tilt. He's the co-host of the This Old Marketing Podcast. And he's the best-selling author of a number of books, including Content Inc., which is having its second edition released this week. The best way to reach and serve your customers today is through content. But you can't just throw out a bunch of content everywhere. You need a plan. And this book will help you strategically and intentionally build that plan. So here it is, my interview with Joe Polizzi. Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? Matt, I'm happy to be with you. I mean, this is great. We finally get to chat. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, uh, this is very good timing. But, you know, I, I guess you probably wouldn't have been here if the past couple of years hadn't uh, gone the way that they did. You know, it's funny. Yeah, you you and I were talking about it before we started here. Uh, I mean, I just finished. Let's see, this is 2019. I just finished my first novel. I I wanted to write a mystery novel. I wrote it. It's called The Will to Die. It did fairly well. I said, "Hey, I'm gonna be a, a novelist. Uh, I'm not gonna go. I'm not gonna be marketing anymore. I'm just letting that all go. Here's my second career." Then the pandemic happened. Actually. It was the first week of March in 2020. We had my uh, my book launch for The Will to Die. I got a couple of awards. I'm like, this is fantastic. It's my new chapter. <laughs> and then everything shuts down, you know, two, whatever, two weeks later, three weeks later. And I started to get a bunch of texts and then emails. This is probably April from okay, a lot yeah. of my friends in marketing and content creators who were getting laid off or leaving their jobs for whatever reason, they were asking me about, Hey, Joe, how do I really build this audience? And Joe, how do I drive revenue from this audience and all this kind of stuff? And they started asking about the book I wrote in 2015, Content Inc. And I said, well, it's a little dated, but, and then I started to think, well, maybe there's the, there's a time for this. Maybe I should, should relook at that book and, and get it out and update it. And uh, I started to do the math. I started to look at Google Trends, 
content creators, content entrepreneurs, creator economy, they're all booming. People are searching for it. I'm like, okay, this is a thing now. Like this, the pandemic has changed this. You've got people that are working from home. They want to know how to create content or they're in marketing companies, you know, marketing positions in companies trying to figure out, okay, how do we get through this pandemic by building our own audience? So, you know, went, called McGraw Hill and said, Hey, you want to re- redo this thing? And they said, sure, let's do it. And uh, here we are a year later uh, with the launch of Content Inc. Uh, version two and all new case studies, uh, changed the model, learned, learned a bunch of stuff about how people were doing this thing. And it's just strange. I, I, <laughs> I never thought I'd be back here, Matt, but I'm back here. So every you time do? you think you're out, they keep pulling me back. Yeah. <laughs> well, and good news, you had a lot of uh, you had a lot of audience research to back up and to validate the need for bringing this back. Well, of course, I mean, you like it's the thing about creating. I mean, I've I've created, let's see, launched four companies, three different audiences to do this thing. And you want to do the upfront research because if you launch in any kind of content first initiative in to a, a particular audience, you have to figure out, okay, am I going to waste my time? Is this even going to be worth it? You have to figure out, okay, right. is this the target audience? Is it target? Is it niche enough? Um, yeah. And then you have to figure out, okay, here's the niche audience that I can really position myself as a leading expert. And then you're like, okay, well, what's the topic area? What's the hook? We call this the content tilt in the book. Like right. why, why should they even care about anything we do? And you ought to figure that out because if you don't have that and you just start creating content all over the place, it, you're probably going to waste your time. You're probably, it's probably all for naught. So if you don't do that strategy work up front, so, which of course we did, we did when we launched content marketing Institute, we did when we launched the tilt here a few months ago, did it with the book. And it's unfortunate that a lot of people get a great idea and I want them to create content. I really do. I want them to do the blogs and TikTok and Twitch and all that. But you have to, strategy is, as you know, Matt, is about saying no to a lot of things. So you could say oh yes, goodness. yes to a couple of things and do that really well. And what most companies do is they just splatter content all over every channel and they're just wasting their customers' time, everyone else's time. Just best to be focused on one area where you can actually be the best in the world. Do it consistently over a long period of time and you'll see success. Yeah. And I see, I see too many businesses and too many marketers thinking, oh, just because I can do this, then I should. And they, they either get overwhelmed or they just overwhelm the market or, or they're not even hitting the right audience. And I've, my, my kids have been getting into Jurassic Park a lot lately. And I keep okay. going back to uh, Jeff Goldblum's quote in there. He's like, you were so preoccupied with whether or not you could, you didn't oh, stop to think whether or not you should. That's such a, that's such a great line. You know, it's funny. I mean, when, so I, I've been doing this thing for 20 years now. And I remember when in 05, 06, 07. So, so I, I started to get on board on Twitter in 2007. And I remember I wrote my first book in 07, 08. And I said, be everywhere your customers are at online. And I really thought that that was the right thing to say. And now 15 yeah. years later, no, that's not right. You don't want to be everywhere your customers are at online. You actually want to pick very carefully where you have the resources so that you can make an impact on your audience's lives or jobs in some way. So that means you should be saying no to TikTok, probably. You probably aren't going to be great at that Twitch channel. And that's why 
if you see that we talk about um, the examples in the book, the best ones are the ones that say, no, we chose a platform. We are a, we are doing blogging or we're creating the best email newsletter on the planet or our YouTube strategy is amazing. And when you do that, you say, no, I'm not going to do Facebook. I'm not going to do LinkedIn groups. I'm not going to do TikTok or Clubhouse, which just came out recently. You know, right. you have to make those decisions. And to your point, Matt, just because you can doesn't mean you should. You have to. The average company from Content Marketing Institute Research, the average company does 14 to 16 different things online and social platforms. And so that means they're doing the blog and the podcast and yeah. the newsletter and TikTok. And oh, my God, it means you're just throwing spaghetti against the wall and nothing's going to stick. Yeah. And think about how much stronger their efforts can be when they just focus on maybe just that one platform, maybe one plus the additional platform instead of that 14 to 16. Well, and so back, this is back two years ago when I was really doing hardcore consulting, Matt, and I would go in and we would do mini content audits, which means we would say, okay, what are you doing? What content are you creating? Who's your audience? We try to get it all down on paper so that we can visually see what they're actually doing. And after those content audits, most of the companies thought, oh, they're going to recommend us to create more content. Every <laughs> So I've been into, I don't know, 200 companies. And every time it's always kill things. Yeah. Get rid of doing that. Stop doing that. Stop doing that because you've got to reallocate resources so you can be great and you can be indispensable at one or two things. So it always throws people off. It's like, oh, are you going to tell us to be on YouTube? No, I'm I'm going to tell you to stop wasting your time on YouTube and let's focus on doing this or this or this. It usually goes back to a strategy like, who are you targeting? Like, are you targeting six audiences at once with that blog? Because that's not going to work. Like nobody's you can't be great when you do that kind of thing. So it's just it's funny how things change. We thought that we had to be everywhere. And when social media uh, rose its ugly head on us and now it's like, no. We actually have to go back to strategy and figure this thing out. Yeah. Who would have thought going back to the basics? Well, I want to talk about the model in the book and, and, and especially how you've evolved it since you published the first iteration of Content Inc. So talk to me about the Content Inc. model. Let me give you a little bit of background, Matt. So the reason well, sure. why we, I, I ended up figuring out this thing and calling it the Content Inc. model was that's the way we launched our business. And it's an audience first business instead of a product first business. So what you do is you say, okay, first, I wanna build a loyal audience by delivering valuable, relevant, compelling information over a period of time. And once you build that loyal audience, then you derive revenue. So let's say that you over for 12 to 18 months, you create this fantastic blog, you get a bunch of subscribers, and then you start seeing an impact on product sales because people love you, they rely on you for information, and then they start buying more of your products and services. That's sort of how it works. And we did that with Content Marketing Institute. We said, okay, well, let's go after content marketers. Let's create that audience. And then once we built that audience, then we launched Content Marketing World, our event. We launched our magazine. We launched our training program. We launched all the money-making opportunities with that. So So what I try to do is say, are there other companies that do this? Like, what is the model? And so we went out and, you know, kind of fast forward to today, we go out and looked at, looked at hundreds of different examples of companies of all sizes, mostly smaller companies. And we said, how do they do it? And we reverse engineered the model. And that's where we came up with the Content Inc. model, which is 
pretty much how it's done today. And I'll just go through it quickly and we can talk about any of the areas you want to, but you start with strategy. The first thing is the sweet spot and the content tilt. That's you don't create any content. You say, okay, what's my sweet spot? So you say, where, what can I actually create content around? What, what, are, what are my expertise areas or skill levels in my company? And then the other side, you say, okay, well, who's my audience and what's their desire? What's their pain point? You have to figure out, again, you can't be talking about your, your products and services. Your customers don't care. You have to talk about your audiences or your customers' needs and wants. So that starts with, okay, the intersection of that's your sweet spot. Then you move on to the content tilt. The most important thing, is the content tilt. That's an area of differentiation. So you find a a spot on the web where you can actually break through that there's not a lot of competition and you can break through and become the leading expert in your niche. So you could do that by being, uh, you know, one of the only people in your industry on a certain platform, let's say Clubhouse. You could do it by focusing on such a niche, niche audience that nobody else is focusing on that area. You might have the you know the funniest podcasters on the planet. You get people drawn there by personalities. You have to have some kind of hook. So you start with sweet spot, content tilt, and then you go to the base. And we already talked about this, Matt, but it's so critical. Instead of throwing your content all over everything, you pick one thing. What are you going to Are you going to do an email newsletter? Are you going to do a blog? Are you going to do a Twitch channel? Are you going to do a clubhouse group? Are you going to do a YouTube series? What is it? What are you going to choose? And you do that for honestly, and here's here's the tough part. You're not going to get instant results. This is a nine to 12 month minimum activity to build an audience. So if you said, Matt, so you might say, Joe, I like this content ink thing. Uh, what should I expect in six months? I would say <laughs> nothing. Right. You don't, nothing is going to happen in six months because it takes a t- time to build a loyal audience. Now, remember, this is not advertising. You're building a con- an asset for your business over a long period of time. If you build a loyal audience, you can monetize that audience in 10 different ways, uh, but you have to build the audience first. So sweet spot, content tilt. The third one is the base. You pick your platform. Then you spend some time building an audience. And that means that if you have social channels that you choose like Facebook, you want to make sure over time you move those to email because we don't control our social channels. We have more control over things like email and membership sites and podcasts even. So we want to focus there. We're building audience. And then we drive into the revenue field. And I don't have to go through all of them, but there's 10 different ways to drive revenue. Some people build a loyal audience and they launch new products or they get sales of existing products or they launch new services. Or like, uh, you know, one of my favorite examples, John Deere's The Furrow Magazine. They created The Furrow Magazine 100 years ago to do what? to sell more John Deere equipment to current John Deere people. There you go. That, that's why they've been doing it for a hundred years. So, so that anyways, revenue, all kinds of ways to do it. Then once we get to that point, then we can diversify into other areas. Then you might say, okay, I've got a blog. Now I'm going to launch a podcast and I'm going to release a book that we do that after we've built what we call a minimum viable audience. And then once you get there, then you go big. Then you really, you really start looking like the Red Bull Media Houses of the world or the Aero Electronics of the world, where, you know, Aero Electronics, they are an electronics distrib- distribution company, Fortune 120 company, and they are also the largest media company in the B2B electronics space with 3,000, I'm sorry, 3 million opt-in engineers that 
engage in their websites and their email newsletters and everything, but they're not a media company. They sell electronic equipment. So that's where we see that. And the model goes through the whole thing from start to finish takes, you know, from you, if you wonder how long it takes to get from zero to a Red Bull media house, it takes about <laughs> five to seven years. Oh my goodness. But, but if you're saying how long does it take to get to revenue, general significant revenue, you can see in 12 to 18 months. So that's yeah. kind of where you're at. Yeah. 12 to 18 months. You know, and so you, you go back to that question of what can I expect within six months? I think, I think you can expect to start questioning yourself to see, is this really working? I don't know yet. Yeah. And you don't, and, but you'll see, like, I'm sure you did when you launched your podcast and I did when I launched mine or my newsletter, the first couple of months, you're like, you're, you're just figuring out, okay, what are the pain points of my customers? What is the right frequency to send out the podcast? Uh, what makes the most sense? What's, you know, what, how do I start the podcast and where, where do I put the hook in there? And where do, how do I answer feedback from listeners and all those types of things that right. takes six to nine months just to figure that out. Then when you get to 12 to 18, you really start to say, Oh, now, now the qualitative and the quantitative starts coming in. You actually start getting email subscribers. If you don't have an email newsletter, you start getting people to really share your content on social media sites. Yeah. And that's where you're Besides like, okay. just my mom. Yeah, exactly. Well, that was it. When I launched my blog in 2007, my, my mom was the only one that read my blog and she didn't understand what I was saying. It's like, but at least I had one reader, there but you then. You know, let's, let's say it's 2000, April 2007, I started my blog. 22 months later, we knew we had something significant. 20, let's say 12 months after that, we were the fastest growing company in our area, according to Inc. Magazine. So these things can happen. And they have. So once you reach that minimum viable audience, things go through the roof really, really quickly. But as you said, Matt, most people die off at six to nine months. They're like, I don't want to do it. It's too hard. It's I, why am I not talking about my products and services so much? And so you have to make sure that everyone's on board, that this is a long-term initiative. But then when you do year two, three, four, five, you become the most innovative, the fastest growing, the, the most amazing in your industry. We've seen it time and time again, but you have to get through the first 12 months. And it can be really hard during the first few months, the first year for a number of people, especially if they think that they should go to a particular platform or particular content channel. And one of the things that I talk to people about that are focusing on their content, especially during this first year is if nobody is reading it right now, you know, in these first few months, you're, you're passionate about writing this, you're passionate about recording this podcast if you only have just one or two audience members, would you still have the passion for doing this? Would you still be doing this? And if the answer is no, well, then you know that they're going to bow out pretty quickly. Yeah. You know what, what really works is if, if I had to make a recommendation to somebody starting off or somebody pivoting, I would say spend the first month or two just to figure out your story. Do you have yeah. it right? We talked about that. Like what makes the most sense then? Don't put 100% of your time in content creation. You need to spend a good chunk on marketing and promotion. Of course. Because you will, I mean, like when I go into, let's say, it's a, I'll just, I won't say the name, but it's a very large technology company. You would know exactly who it is. We went in and they were spending almost 100% of the resources for this particular content project on content creation. And they didn't realize why they weren't. 
uh, doing better, building an audience. And I'm like, you're creating all this content, but you're not marketing it. This is a, you have to treat it like a product. So we talked about, okay, we're going to scale back your content creation budget to about 30%. And we're going to spend about 70% on content promotion and distribution. That means putting ads behind it. That means creating influencer relationships. That means focusing on who your true fans are and getting them to share your stuff. And a lot of people don't realize that they think, oh, if I just create content, that's enough. I'm like, no, it's not. You have to get people to read it or you're going to get discouraged really quickly. Right. And that goes back to one of the first things you talked about was having an audience first mindset. Because I think today, a lot of people will either decide to create content or even, even create a product that they'll, they'll take that product first approach yeah. instead of an audience first approach. How can marketers ensure that their approach is always audience first? Well, here's the thing. So we're not you and I aren't talking about you can't do any product-driven content. Of course you do. Because if you right. get people that they're right before the purchase, they probably need to know like what your product does. And then you might need a tutorial video on how it works. Those things are fine. But you got to remember that's for right before the purchase happens, or you're probably creating content for right after the purchase happens. Oh, so they bought your product. How do they use it? Same thing on both sides. Right. But here's the thing is that's not going to help you get an audience and that that become ultimately buy your product. It's not going to happen because if you start talking about yourself and all this content, they're going to turn you out, tune you out in two seconds. So you have to do the analysis and say, okay, who really is my customer? Like, who, or in this case, who's my audience that I want to be my customer? So you write that down. Okay, who's the who? And you want to be very specific. So instead of let's say you target plant managers, well, plant managers that's very broad. Maybe yeah. it should be plant managers who work at companies of more than 10,000 people who outsource their IT to India and China. Now, that's a very specific group of people that you can be the leading expert. So you want to focus on really who's the who and then figure out, okay, now what am I going to deliver based on that who's pain points and what keeps them up at night? And then what you want to do is every piece of content you create, whether it's a blog post or podcast, you want to write a little thing called outcome or audience outcome. So you say, okay, I'm going to write this article. What's in it for the audience? Like, how are you trying to help them get a better job or live a better life? Because most of the content that companies create is all about driving product or service sales. And that never works. Again, the sale has to happen after you build the audience. And unfortunately, Matt, I mean, this is just the truth. 95% of corporate content out there is terrible. It's just a waste of time. <laughs> just stop, stop cluttering everything up. Like just focus on being great at this one thing and focus on the needs of the audience over yourself. So if you're selfless like that with your content creation, you will then drive sales later. So it is a pay it forward type of thing, but you have to create the content, build the audience first. You do, but you mentioned a really great thing about being able to really define and really hone down, niche down your audience. Too many marketers, too many business leaders will say, well, my audience is everybody, but you can't be all things to all people or you'll end up just being noise in the marketplace. Well, th oh, I, man, I, I, that gets me when people say my, I'm the stuff I'm creating is for everyone. Listen to this. If your audience is everybody, that means your content is for everybody. And that means it's for nobody. Nobody, yeah. you can't be focused enough to be great 
at any one. You've got professional media companies out there that will just trounce you. The, the competition is too fierce. There's no way you can do it. So I'll give you a quick example of how. So I started at a company called Pent Media in 2000. We were a business to business publishing company. We had 42 different brands. Um, basically magazines and events is, are what we did to business owners and uh, technologists. We had 42 different audiences. So even though the company as a whole, wow. even though the company as a whole, I mean, you could say, oh, how are you going to create content that affects a manufacturing executive and a plant manager at the same time? You can't. They're totally two totally no. different needs. That's like saying uh, the New York Times and BuzzFeed are the same thing. You know, it's not. Was totally, not. totally different. So you've got to figure that. So what, what you might say, so let's say that you're a B2B company. So you target businesses. You might say like an average business to business company, you might have six to nine different audiences. So what you need to do is focus on one of those for your first content effort. So get that one going. Let's say it's an email newsletter just to that one audience. And then when you're successful at that, then you might consider moving on to audience two. But, but actually BuzzFeed is a really good example. They have something like 60 different e-newsletters because they have 60 different audiences. So think about that. It's not just, oh, get BuzzFeed News and we cover everybody. No, they've got some for dog lovers. They get cat lovers for memes for every. They've got a newsletter for everything based on the needs of their audience. We have to think about doing things the same way. So you have to choose. So you can't go to all nine of your audience groupings. You have to start with one. Once you've done that, starting with, with the model that you just walked through, let's dive into those stages, those steps. And the sure. first of those is the sweet spot. So how do you find that true sweet spot? So first of all, always start with your audience. Who is it? And get as niche as possible. And the best way to look at it is when you have the audience down on paper, whether let's say it's that we'll use that plant manager's example. And you say, if right. I create content around this particular expertise and skill area that we have. So that's the one side. And then you're going to that plant manager on the other side. You have to look at yourself and you say, well, can we be the leading expert in the world, informational expert in the world on that topic? And if you say no, then you're not niche enough. So you keep working it down on both sides, on the expertise skill side and on the audience side until you find that intersection that makes sense. So that's how you start. And that moves directly into the content tilt, because even if you get your sweet spot right, your, your hook might not be enough. So what you want to do is you want to find that seam through the tackles and you want to burst through that. But if you don't have a proper differentiation, you're going to hit the line and fall back and it's not going to be worth anything. So you've got to figure out what that differentiation is that you do different than everyone else in the world. And that's what we have to start with. That's not easy, though. That's every media company on the planet have come to that point. Like, yeah. for example, I'll give you. So I don't know if you're into cryptocurrency, but the media in cryptocurrency has taken off. Now, when oh, you right. first when people first started in cryptocurrency media in around 2015, 2016, it was real easy, right? You just had a newsletter on crypto. There you go. Well, well you start today. Newsletter on crypto is not going to get you anything because you can't break through all the clutter that's out there. It's just too much stuff. So you might say, huh. I might have to do an email newsletter just on, let's say, District OX or whatever. It was like some weird crypto, and you can be the leading expert in that. 
So that might be an opportunity because that's not saturated. Like you can actually be the leading expert in the world. So this is how, you know, time goes on. So when we started Content Marketing Institute around, you know, with the thought of it on in 2007, we could just go out in content marketing. Nobody was talking about it. Like we could just pave the way. It was fantastic. We kind of named it that way and it worked great. Well, if I started a content marketing blog today, it would never work. No. It's too broad. There's too many people covering. So you'd have to say, uh, has to be financial content marketing issues for accounting professionals, something like that. Right. Like maybe then you can be the leading expert. You no, know, it is definitely not easy, but it's worth spending, you know, two weeks, three weeks to really figure out, okay, how you can break through all that clutter and come out on top. And then you can figure out what's next after that. And it's making sure that you take that time to be able to do that. Don't st- Yeah. Somebody generally says, oh, I've got a great idea. Let's do a blog or let's be on Twitter or TikTok or whatever the case is. And then you have to say, hey, hold, hold your horses here. Yeah. Let, let's figure out why are we going to do this? What's the business objective for doing it? Who's the who? What are we going to send to the who? How are we going to send to the who? And then you kind of figure out the rest of the way. But that's, you know, that takes a good couple months in a company to really figure it out. And then you've got to make sure that the executives who hold the budgetary purse strings in your company are behind it because if they're not, you're going to, it's going to get killed. And most content marketing programs get killed, not because of lack of results. It's because somebody in the organization doesn't understand what you're doing. They're going to say, Hey, you're creating all this content. None of it's about our products and services. I don't like that. Let's go do something else. <laughs> right. Say, no, no, no. You have to say, no, this is how we build an audience. It can't be about us. Or we, we've had, we've had two quarters worth of this. I'm not seeing any results yet. Let's move on. It happens so often. I've done a couple of speeches on this, but what I always say is before you start creating content for your external customers, you have to create content for your internal customers first. So I always say, pave the way. You should have like a regular update, a regular newsletter, use a Slack channel, whatever the case is to keep people apprised of why you're creating the initiative, what the goals are, what you're trying to do with your audience, who the audience is, and get them to understand that it does take time. And that's why the Content Inc. book comes in handy because you have so many different case studies from so many industries that took a patient approach, didn't see much for six to nine months, got to that 12 to 18 month mark, and now are just blowing it out of the water. And with that internal audience approach, is that more towards the stakeholders who have that decision-making authority to make sure that they're on board and remain committed? Absolutely. There's two ways to do it. And this is the way that I would do it in the way that I've actually done it. I put the list together of all the financial accounting people, the CEO, the chief operations, whatever the case, however your company organizes itself. It's generally around 10 people. If you're in a larger company, if you're in a small company, it might just be one, it might just be right. the CEO or your director of marketing, whatever. And you send them something on a regular basis. It could be as infrequent as monthly. It could be as frequent as weekly. And you just send them an update that could be a listing of who's doing what in your industry, you know, what content's going on out there. You know, first of all, send them the whole thing about why you're doing it and have it be very short. Like, here's what we're doing, here's the bullet points, why. And then you solidify that on an ongoing basis and just keep it going because you want everyone in the organization to believe why you're doing this. And then you have a whole separate thing with your content team. And that happens every time you meet. 
So every time you get together, you should review what you call your content marketing mission statement, which is what we talk about in the content tilt area. And that's where you, it's basically like an editorial mission statement. You, you go through who's the who, what are we sending? What's the audience outcome? And that should be a statement. And you should review that statement with your content creation team every time. So everyone's on the same page with what we're doing. And in that uh, content tilt mission statement, that helps act as that filter to run those decisions through saying, you know, I know we can do this, but should we do this? Well, what does the mission statement say? So true. Everything you do. And that's why what will happen is, and this is the good and bad thing about when you're chief executive starts to buy into it because they'll say, oh, let's do an article on this. I like what you guys are doing with the blog or podcast, or can we interview this person on our podcast? And then you go to your handy dandy mission statement and you say, uh-oh, it doesn't fit. Yeah. And then you have to get back to the CEO and say, sorry, this is not what our audience wants to hear. or This is not going to help them. So yes, absolutely. And that's why you want to review it ongoing because you want everyone on your content team to know it like the back of their hand because you're going to come up with every every week or every time you have a meeting, you're going to say, no, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. That doesn't fit. Oh, that does fit. And there then, you go. That, then it works like magic. And so once you've got that, you're in, you're in that mindset of understanding what fits, what doesn't fit. You, you have your stage on the base, building, defining your yep. content base. Talk to me about that. Because you, you, you talked about saying, you know, just picking one place and I know why, but help us understand why just one place. Yeah. I mean, we do the analysis of the hundreds of examples in the book, but we also look at the greatest media examples of all time. So you look at, look at Disney, look at New York times, look at Red Bull media house, look at uh, financial times, look at uh, YouTubers like Mr. Beast and PewDiePie, you know, whatever you want, however you want to do, whatever industry, whatever platform, it's always the same. They always start on one platform. So that would be like YouTube or a podcast or an email newsletter with one content type. Is it video? Is it audio? Is it textual plus image? I can't explain it other than the fact that that's the what the data says. It always works that way. And I, I think it comes down to resources that we can be great at. And when you say, oh, I want to do two or three things at the same time, you just can't be great at all three at the same time. That's why you have to be great at one first before you go and diversify. So you have to pick that platform. Now, if you want to test out a couple to start to see what makes the most sense for your story, that's fine. You might say, oh, let's launch the email newsletter and the blog at the same time, or let's launch the YouTube series and the podcast at the same time and see which one works. And then whichever one works the best, we can go ahead and, and, and go to the podcast or YouTube, or whatever. I don't like to do that. I like to say, I think based on how the expertise we have in our organization, we've got some really good people that know how to be on radio. We have some really good interviewers. We have some access to some amazing guests in our network. Let's go ahead and do the podcast. We'll do it as a Q&A. We'll do it once a week uh, and we'll host it on Libsyn. We'll create a website around it, whatever. So I, I like that. And then basically what happens is you have your base and then they, you generally pick two social media networks to then become your like promotion engine. So you might say, okay, we're going to do a podcast and then we're going to focus on Twitter and LinkedIn 
to be sort of our home base to build audiences so that we can get them to drive them to the podcast. And that means you forget about things like Facebook and TikTok and Instagram or whatever, because you have to only be good. You can only be good at so many things at one time. So I like the one, two model of making this work. Right. And then after that period of time where you've gotten really proficient at it, where it's where it's running like clockwork, then I think you can start to scale and look at the additional platforms. That's exactly right. I mean, so when you go, you get that base. So let's say you spend that nine to 12 months on that base. You're building an audience. At some point, you're going to want to diversify into an email newsletter. And the reason why I'm so adamant about this is because if you build your house on rented land. So if you build on YouTube or you build on Facebook, it's fine. That might be the decision to go with first, but at some point as a strategist, understanding how assets work, you have to put more of the control into your hands and not have all that control be in YouTubes or Facebooks or LinkedIn's that you don't control. Because again, if you have, you know, let's use PewDiePie. People listening to this might not know PewDiePie, but yeah. he's one of the big largest YouTubers on the planet. He has over a hundred million subscribers on his YouTube channel. Well, those hundred million, who who owns those hundred million subscribers? Not PewDiePie. That's right. YouTube does. YouTube can can say, okay, this is how you're going to make revenue if you want to do advertising PewDiePie, and this is how you're going to get access, and we will only show your content to these people and not these people. And by the way, that's YouTube's, that's Google's prerogative. They can do whatever they want, but that doesn't mean that you have to be saddled with that. So you want to make sure that you have some kind of email or membership component. So you go with, I got the base as my platform. I'm building audience. I'm making sure that I move that audience over time from social media to some kind of email control, subscriber control. Um, Now I'm starting to get into driving some revenue uh, some opportunities. And now I'm also looking at, okay, now I'm going to diversify. I'm going to say, okay, I've got my podcast. Let's launch an event. I've got my podcast. Let's launch an event and a book series. Let's launch a webinar. So now you're really looking like a diversified media platform, but you can't do that until you build the core audience. But then when you build the core audience, that's when it really gets exciting and you can diversify into many, many different channels. For the most part, from what I've seen, it starts to really grow exponentially from there. That's, I mean, again, because I just went through it at Content Marketing Institute, which we sold in 2016. We just started with the blog. We did the blog for 22 months. That's all we did. Then we launched research and a pretty robust email newsletter platform. Then we just did that for a while. Then we launched Chief Content Officer, a print magazine, believe it or not. Then we launched an events, an annual large scale event uh, series. Then two years after that, we launched a podcast and then on and on and on and on. And now there's like 20 different things, membership program, training program. Those are all added later. And then you look at it and you're like, wow, this is like a media company. And you're like, yeah, that's the thing. Everyone's a media company. It just depends on whether or not you look at it that way. And you can drive revenue 10 different ways. And, you know, it's funny that you're seeing organizations. We talk about this in the book, like Cleveland Clinic, you know, large hospital network and, you know, started in Cleveland, but all over the place now, they now fund their entire content marketing division with direct revenue, with sponsorships, with events, with premium content, with content syndication. Do they drive more patient visits? And do they they accomplish all the content marketing goals? Absolutely. But at the same time, they're driving direct revenue to pay for the entire thing. So is Cleveland Clinic a media company or a hospital? They're both. They're both now, yeah. They're both, yeah. And 
you know, to, to talk about these types of stories where you start with the one platform and then after success, you're able to add more and more and usually a bit more quickly or exponentially. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the organization Hope for Justice. They're a global organization okay. that is working to combat slavery across the world. Wow. Their U.S. headquarters is here in Nashville, so I have, I have a relationship with them. Their CEO, in his book, he talks about how when he was growing the organization, his board wanted him to you know focus on all these you know like like eight to ten different areas. And what he told him was, well, listen, what we're doing here is we're creating a neighborhood, so to speak. And we're building houses. It's going to be a lot easier for us to build one house first and build one house at a time. Mm-hmm. Once we get that first house built, then the second house can actually be done a bit more quickly. And then the other houses can come along even more quickly after that. And to me, like that, that just really opened up my mind on how to focus on your business one thing at a time. It's, oh, I, I love that example. Because that's so true. It's funny because we're just so, as I said, I'm starting my fourth company now, The Tilt, which is a newsletter for content creators. And I'm so anxious to launch 10 things. Everyone wants to do it, right? You're like, oh, this is the new business. I want to do everything at one time. But no, for the first year, all we're doing is an e-newsletter. That's all we're doing. We're going to create the best an e-newsletter for content creators on the planet. And that's all we're going to do. We're going to build our minimum viable audience. And we've already set an audience target and said, we're not doing anything else until we hit 50,000 subscribers. When we hit 50,000 subscribers, which we think will take about a year to get there based on our timetables, then we'll diversify. Now it's hard to do that, but you know what? That's the only approach. Just like you have to build one house at a time. It's just, you have to say, hold on again, less is more in this case. And it's having a lot of trust in the process too, knowing that, hey, whatever great idea I have right now for the next thing, let's table it until we have met that goal, whether it's an audience number goal or a time period goal, and then you can add the next thing. And then the next thing after that. The, the, what you just said is perfect. And it's a, it's a good way to do it when, when we call this, Brian Clark from Copyblogger calls this the minimum viable audience. And yes. so what helps is to say, let's say that you're a business to business company and you're launching an email newsletter. You might look at it. And again, it's a little bit of, a little bit qualitative, a little bit quantitative, but you say, what's a minimum viable audience for us? And you might say, we're not going to do anything until we get 5,000 opt-in email subscribers to our newsletter. And you might say that that sounds right because we've got 150 right now. Okay, if we keep doing what we're doing and we promote it right, we can get to 5,000 in nine to 12 months, whatever. And then everyone's only focused on the audience number. That's all we care about. We're not going to drive revenue at this point. We're not doing anything else. We're just going to get to that number. And then when you get to that number, you can allow yourself to look at that list that you had when people had crazy ideas and want to do everything else. Then you can look at that crazy idea thing and say, okay, we hit our minimum viable audience number. Now we can decide, do we want to just stay the course? Do we want to drive revenue opportunities or do we want to diversify? There you go. And you've gotten to that point where you can make those decisions. But I also think that along the way, if you're defining that minimum viable, viable audience, you need to make sure that you're attracting the right audience and, and not just you know uh, getting, what, 5,000 email opt-ins of everyone. Oh, absolutely right. I mean, and you'll know that. So let's go yeah. back to the email example. So if you, 
you might have 5,000 subscribers, but if you have a 5% open rate on your email newsletters, you don't have 5,000 subscribers. <laughs> you have something else. If you launch an activity like this, by the way, I mean, a lot of people have, you know, do email blasts, which I hate that term blast, but they do them and they'll get a, you know, one to 2% open rate. And they think that's amazing. Well, if you do an initiative like this, like a content Inc. initiative, you probably are looking at minimum 20% open rate. You would like to see higher than that. I mean, Anne Hanley's newsletter, which we talk about in the book, oh, she gets about yeah. 50% open rate on yeah. hers because everybody loves that newsletter. I know. And that's what you want. You want somebody to look forward to your content. And if your content wasn't there, they would be sad. That's what we want to do. Yeah. If you were to go away today, would your audience care? Would they miss you? You know? Yeah, I use that. I use that on a lot of speeches I'll start with because I'm talking about content marketing or the model. And I'll put a box on the screen, like a UPS box or an Amazon box. And I say, okay, I want you to pretend you take all your corporate content, all your email newsletters, all your blog posts, all your podcast videos, and you put them in this box and then you pack it up and ship it off. And I ask, did anyone notice? And the honest answer is probably not. And then we've got a problem. That's a really good way to, to look at it with executives in your company, because most of your executives don't even read your newsletter. They don't watch your videos. They don't look at your social media. Like they don't care. Like we need yeah. to make sure that they know, like we're, we, it's not activity. Nobody's gets paid for activity. You can't do check the box anymore. We have to be better. Yeah. And then, so let's say you, you get all the way to that point. You've gone through the diversify stage. You get to that next stage, sell or go big. Walk me through that. How can you make intentional decisions around that? Sure. So there's, I put sell or go big purposely because if an entrepreneur reads this that started a content ink business, they might sell like my wife and I did in 2016 and we sold for a heck of a lot of money. So that they might just decide to do that. Or if you work for a business and you have a content ink initiative as part of your marketing, that's when you really look to go big. So, and I want you to think really big. Like if you look at Red Bull, what's more valuable? Red Bull, the energy drink company or Red Bull Media House? And you know what? It's a tough discussion. It's yeah. close. Yeah. Red Bull Media yeah. House is worth a ton of money and they drive a ton of revenues, entertainment contracts, video syndication. I mean, they are like a professional media company and a lot of people don't realize that. So you want to get to that go big. And here's, a, we talk about a lot of things in the, in the two chapters on it, but the big opportunity right now is acquisition. And this is happening like crazy. So if you're familiar with marketing automation company, HubSpot, they just purchased The Hustle, which is an email newsletter sent to over a million smaller businesses and startups. Right. So The Hustle, uh, HubSpot paid 6% of their annual sales and marketing budget to purchase The Hustle. It was a $27 million deal. Pretty big deal, right? But yeah. nothing for a billion-dollar company like HubSpot. We're seeing deals done right now. They're not all million-dollar deals. Some of them are five figures. Some are a million dollars. But what smart companies are doing right now, they're saying, look, it takes, as we talked about, it takes time to build a loyal audience. Um, we don't want to wait a year or two years. Well, if you don't want to wait a year or two years and you're flush with cash, like a lot of corporations are right now, you go out and buy some of these bloggers, influencers, media sites, and you plug them in if it makes sense. So you, what you do is you make a list of, okay, here's my audience we're targeting. Where's my audience hanging out on the web? 
and you make a list of, oh, this blog, this podcast, uh, this event, this newsletter, and you make a list of that and you start doing the work. You start making connections with those people. And I've got my list just like everyone else does. And I just purchased a company a couple months ago, same thing, bolted it onto what we were already doing. You're seeing it happen all the time. And I think smart enterprises are doing this now. And it's like a land grab, Matt. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. We're seeing, maybe because there's so much corporate cash out there that was unexpected. We didn't think this was going to happen, but this is absolutely happening. And that's, that's part of really, really going big is look to buy first before you create. It'll be interesting to see with these acquisitions where the quality of the content goes and where the quality and I guess maybe either depending on the media, any inherent bias in that yep. content. You can't mess it up. I mean, that'd be like, you know, you, you, that's be like buying a, a Bitcoin and then burning it and saying, <laughs> I don't need it anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like done. No, we want to make sure we take care of that. So if you have aspirations to buy a small blog or a media property, and then you're going to talk all about your products and services, please don't do it because that audience will turn on you in a hurry that you've just ruined everything. So what you want to do up front is to figure out what makes sense and how are we going to drive revenue from this without alienating the audience. You have to have that conversation up front. And of course, the owner or the creator of the one that you're going to purchase is going to probably have a large say in this. So make sure you talk to them about what makes the most sense because they want an exit or they want to join your team. That's great, but let's make it a win-win for everybody. And it's possible that their personal brand will still be tied to that content, to that media. So they want to make sure that that their name still stays intact. Yeah. When when we when we sold Content Marketing Institute to um, a company called UBM, now Informa, we worked with them very closely to make sure because I was you know the host at all the events. I was very, very active everywhere in the industry, and they wanted to make sure that we didn't destroy things. So I made sure, okay, I'm going to stay on for two years. After that, I'm going to make sure I go to the event and I'm active in your webinars and do things like that, which I'm happy to do. But we have to make sure you set those guidelines up front and make sure that owner stays a part of it. Now, sometimes it doesn't work out, but most of the time, the owner or the key influencer in this case is more than happy to create something that's going to work. All right. So we're coming out of the pandemic, hopefully. We're, yeah. we're, we're starting to come out of there. But are there any aspects, any changes in content marketing that have been accelerated over the past year due to the pandemic? No, it's just more opportunity and more clutter. I mean, that's <laughs> really what we're saying. So we, we've <laughs> seen a, yeah, we've seen a con, we've seen, seen more, almost like a five year jump in content consumption. I mean, you've seen and you saw what happened with platforms like TikTok and, and platforms like Clubhouse. I mean, they go from zero to amazing in a very short period of time where, you know, remember when YouTube had its first video that had a million downloads and now you get a billion downloads in a day. I mean, yeah. these are the things that we're starting to see. This is the change. The reason why there's still an opportunity here is you have all these different groups of audiences, but you still have so many companies that are doing it wrong. So I swear, this is still, I think it's true, like 95%, 97% of companies don't know what they're doing with this and they don't know this model. 
So you people listening to this have an advantage because you know you can't just throw out content everywhere. It's not going to work. So while every one of your competitors are just throwing out content every which way and not focusing on how to be indispensable for one audience, you're going to do that. And by the way, that audience is always available right now. And there's no middle person involved. There's no middle layer. You can go directly to that audience, either through a network or through your e-newsletter or whatever the case is. And it is as inexpensive as it's ever been before. You have to do the work. But the thing is, any anybody can do this with, as we talked about, patience and grit. If you do patience, grit, focus, anybody can do it. There you go. If you follow the model, if you stick with it, and, and have that patience and grit, then you can stand out from everybody else that's doing it wrong. Everybody gives up too early. It's generally around four to six months, Matt. It's depressing. Yeah. They wow. put all this work into it up front and then they just don't see the payoff in three to four months. And I'm like, who gave you these expectations that this was going to happen too soon? I've been I swear, I've been in some of these big companies, they do content marketing campaigns, which by the way, is not a thing. Oh, content no. marketing campaign <laughs> means you stop it at some point. And they say, oh, we're going to do this nine month campaign. And I'm like, please stop. Just go buy advertising. Yeah. Stop. You, you can't create a loyal audience in nine months. It just doesn't happen. That's so, not how it works. It's not how it works. And they, but they don't get it because they really think it's like advertising. It's like, oh, if I just push this out enough, and I just do enough of this activity, it'll work. I'm like, no, it doesn't. It absolutely doesn't work. All right. We've learned a lot, but I want to understand a little bit more about your perspective on Content Inc. So if you were to create a five-song soundtrack for Content Inc., what songs would you include? Oh, see, this is the best part of your podcast, man. Okay. <laughs> So you'll find out a little bit about my personality as I give you this list of five songs here. So here, here's the here's the list. The first is my shot from the Hamilton soundtrack. I'm a big Lin Manuel Miranda fan. Uh, so my shot because you got to take your shot. Oh yeah, I saw the Hamilton poster in the, in in the background. And you're all oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, I my I was lucky enough to see Hamilton on Broadway before Lin Manuel stepped down. Oh, wow. Alexander Hamilton. So it was unbelievable. So great, great musical. If you haven't seen it, of course, it's on Disney plus right now. So my shot on the Hamilton soundtrack that is one. The second one is can't stop from the red hot chili peppers is the same thing we're talking about. Yeah. You cannot stop. So that's the second one. The third one, virtual insanity from Jamiroquai, <laughs> because you gotta be a little bit crazy to, oh, yeah. uh, to make this thing happen. The fourth one, is Rockstar from Post Malone. Because if you can make it that 12 to 18 months, you are going to be the rock star for your industry. And the fifth one, finally, you can't leave out Be Beastie Boys, Intergalactic, oh because that is just an amazing song. And while you're celebrating and you've created this content empire, you can play a little Beastie Boys in the background. That is one of my get pumped up songs right there. Oh, it's so good. I mean, it's just... But you know you gotta you gotta have a little crazy when you're doing this because it it takes so much patience for so long you have to have this ego that we're gonna make it we're gonna make it we're gonna make it but again if you do the work and you follow the process you will absolutely make it. Oh yeah, and and you just just to stay on Beastie Boys for a moment, like I've, I had an epiphany some months ago, like you know as as content marketers they really took an audience first approach, but they also had a lot of uh, emotional intelligence in their lyrics because in about 
60% of their songs, they reintroduce themselves to their audience by name. Isn't that something? Always. And that that's where hip hop really gets it right because they really do make it personal. And I, and, and their audience loves that for that instead of, you know, somebody writing a song for somebody else. And then that person performing it, it's very, very different. Hip hop lyrics are very personal. And that's what, you know, that's why it's probably the most popular genre going on right now. Yeah. There you go. Well, Joe, thank you so much. This has been really eye-opening, insightful. We've learned a lot from you today, but where can people go to learn more? Absolutely. Of course, we, we just launched the new version of Content Inc. I hope everyone picks up a copy. Go to content-inc.com for the landing page, or you can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or wherever else you want to go for that. The new business that we started is called The Tilt. Go to thetilt.com. It's a two-time-a-week e-newsletter specifically for the things that we've talked about on this podcast. And if you want to get a regular update, do that. And then the last thing is uh, my wife and I founded a, an organization called Orange Effect. Orange Effect Foundation delivers speech therapy grants to kids who can't afford them. We've got 250 kids in 35 states now that we support. It's sort of our passion. So if you are speech therapy is an important issue for you in getting speech therapy to kids who need it, it's theorangeeffect.org. That is some amazing work. And am I correct that that's the type of therapy that's still not necessarily covered by insurance? Well, that's the issue. And this is the thing, like, my son went through aggressive speech therapy. He's doing wonderful now. He's 19 years old. He's going to be a sophomore in college. But what I found out is that from ages two to seven, that's the critical ages where you need speech therapy. And what yeah. we found out going through this process where you know I could afford it, a lot of people can't. And when your insurance doesn't cover it or a family has to choose between putting dinner on the table and speech therapy, they're going to choose dinner. They've got to survive, right? Of course, we yeah. know this, and we don't want them to make that choice. And that's why Orange Effect exists in the first place. Well, that is beautiful work. I, I, I am grateful for you for understanding that and recognizing the need and being able to support that need. Thank you. And we have so much to do. We got so, well, yeah. There's so many. There's so many kids that we get so many applications that we can't fund. So we just need more and more fun. And there's a lot of great organizations do a lot of wonderful work around research, especially with autistic kids. But I'm like, hey, what about the kids that are here? Like, we need to do something for them. And that's that's why we created the organization. Awesome. Well, Joe, thank you so much. It was great seeing you today. Great talking to you. And congrats on the re-release. Matt, thank you so much. I super appreciate your time and having me on your podcast. I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Joe Polizzi. So go and check out Content Inc. It's officially out today. And go check out the foundation that he and his wife Pam run, the Orange Effect Foundation. You can learn more about the great work they're doing at theorangeeffect.org. And if you're enjoying the Simple Brand Podcast, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It's going to make it a lot simpler for you to get future episodes like the next one featuring Carla Johnson. Carla is a best-selling author and one of the top marketing keynote speakers. We'll discuss her latest book, Rethink Innovation, where she teaches how to make innovation everyone's business. In fact, she's got a goal to teach 1 million people how to become innovative thinkers by 2025. And you get to be one of those people. Hey, that makes you one in a million. You go, you. So go ahead and subscribe. You'll automatically get Carla's episode as soon as it's live. Until then, keep it simple. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Simple Brand Podcast. 
Want to make your listening experience simple and automatically receive each new episode? Visit our website, simplebrandpodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you're finding value from the Simple Brand Podcast, leave us a rating or review. That helps us get the show to the ears of the people who need it most. Be sure to catch Matt right here next week. Same Matt time, same Matt channel. Until then, keep it simple.